Hi, welcome to the cottage. We are a lively outpouring of an exciting adventure into God's riches and glories in Christ Jesus. We really work to activate an excitement for the kingdom of God as it is in the now until it comes into its fullness. We invite you to our sessions to explore the heights and depths of God's love in a fuller bandwidth. I'm Dr. Ken, the pastor of a small independent church seeking to return to the Lord's zeal in times where apathy and lethargy rule the day of the complacent. We try to shake things up and offer a temporary home as we travel this sod until we reach higher ground and connect into the everlasting life from above, here on the earth as it is in heaven. For more information, you can email us at thecottage at dken.cc. That is thecottage at dken.cc. Hi. Welcome back to The Cottage, where with tonight's episode we continue our series on Jesus walking on the water. We go back to Mark 6 and we explore Jesus' proclamation that He is I Am by looking at the phrase in the Old Testament where it says that Yahweh is God of gods. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to be in your presence, to be in your house, to be in your midst as your people. You've called us, and we have answered. And you continually to lead, guide, and direct us so that we can lean on those everlasting arms in all the times that we face. And we look forward to the day that we experience your everlasting arms anew and afresh in the kingdom that we're waiting for. So, Father, just continue to bless our, our journey tonight as we study your word and learn more about who you are. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Well, we've been in uh, Mark chapter 6. We've been studying Jesus walking on the sea. And in Sunday school, we did this verse specifically, for they all saw him and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And we dug into this verse, it is I, where Jesus proclaims himself to be the name that's used of God at the burning bush. We've made lots of parallels. So if you haven't seen, heard the messages, they're online. Lots of parallels between the incident, the burning bush, the proclamations in the previous, the Old Testament, the previous Testament, how God chooses this name for him, and then how Jesus invokes that when the disciples cannot make out who it is that is coming to them. We dealt with the idea of troubled on Sunday night. We did Peter and what Matthew records about Peter on Sunday morning. And so I want to continue with where we've been left off. And of course, again, he's using exact Greek phrase that is in Exodus 3.14 at the burning bush, when Moses wants to know, who are you? Who are you? Who do I tell the people? God called me to go down and bring you up out of Egypt. So who do I say? God, who's God? And God said, you want to know? Here's my calling card. I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. Of course, they were troubled, and God delivers them through the water of the Red Sea. You see all these parallels we pulled out. And then we left off with this verse. 
in Deuteronomy 32, 39 that I want to explore deeper tonight. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God with me. It doesn't say there's no other gods. That's what we've been taught or thought to believe. But that's not what he says. He says there's no God comparable on my level. I'm the most high. There's other gods, but they're down, down the food chain. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. I am the most high. That's another phrase used in the Bible to describe Yahweh. The most high. If he's the most high, there has to be other high ones. And as, as you know, I spent many years in Asia as a missionary. And over there they have over 330 million gods. And so there are lots of gods that they worship. So I don't believe that the Bible ever taught the idea that there's only one God and nothing else exists. That's not what I understand when I read the text. Because even God here has made it clear. We talked to also, we did three rounds and three rebellions. We did a lot of threes when we did our sacred spaces. So I want to do a little review tonight. We talked about the three rebellions in Genesis. Genesis 3, you're familiar with, the fall from Eden, where a serpent from the realm below. And then what's the judgment placed upon humanity? Adam and Eve are exiled, but by God's grace to go out in mission and complete the mission. He still wants them to go on out to make the whole earth like what God patterned in Eden. He sends them out in verse 23. We talked about Genesis 6, the fallen from above. These are the beings from above that come down. They're known as the watchers. The technical phrase is apkalu. Produce the hybrid giants Nephilim that's talked about. And this is where we get David defeating Goliath. Goliath is a Nephilim. So the giants in the Bible. But the rebellion is from above. Other spiritual beings. Then we have, what's the judgment? A new creation in a flood to revert back to Genesis 1 and restart. Just like you would do with your phone or your other electronic gadgets that get all messed up. You have to restart them, reboot them, refresh them, restore them, factory reset, get back to factory. Then they'll work again because they got all cluttered up. And the idea is that these beings from above brought knowledge down, and the knowledge that they brought down was what corrupted humanity. We don't get the full story in Genesis 6, and Peter and Jude in the New Testament grab onto it, but we have to read other texts in Judaism to find out the full story, where they brought down this knowledge and taught humanity how to be wicked, and that's why the earth is so bad, because they learned it from these beings. Who taught them? Of course, God changes that when he has Moses bring down the Torah, the law, to teach, to reverse that at Sinai. So we have that. Then we talk about Genesis chapter 10 and 11, the Tower of Babel. Now, we haven't done a whole lot with that, and maybe you're not familiar with it. But you, it's interesting. Now, this is humankind that, as Tolkien called it, Middle Earth. You got what's below... And what's above? And we talked about that from Philippians, right? Chapter 2. Every knee shall bow here on the earth, under the earth, in heaven, the three realms. So remember what I taught you. If not, it's, it's out there. We have it. Go to the link. We have it. 
So you have this idea that beings from Middle Earth try to defy the barrier, that bow that was set as a boundary at the flood. When God put that bow, it's a boundary that neither will heaven, nothing from heaven is going to come down and harm you. He sets a bow, a boundary, saying that I'm not going to come down here to harm you and destroy the earth again with the flood and reverse it back to Genesis chapter 1. It's a promise that you will not have that rebellion. Okay? But they decide that they're going to do, and, and I'm, I'm really interested, I was told, and I get in trouble all the time. My brother says, I got to listen to your messages because you keep talking about me and my boys. <laughs> my understanding is they're going to go to Cahokia Mounds for Memorial Day weekend and do some checking that out, I guess, right? Is that what, that what we're told? I haven't gotten home to talk to them because the boys are about ready to finish at Mississippi Valley and my brother's got the weekend off, so he's going to do that with them. And I'm, I'm interested in what they do with the mounds, but see... Back in this day, and we can discuss this. I've been wanting to discuss this more, and we have some technical issues, and I couldn't show you the slides, but I wanted to show you this eventually where we get to the Tower of Babel. And you see, they're trying to build a stairway to heaven because they want God to come down on their terms and come inside the temple they have built. And then you see, see, this is our God. So it's more like instead of being God's people, they want, they're the people and he's our God, <laughs> if you understand the logic. And that's what the problem with Genesis 10 and 11 is. And what happens there is the scattering of about the 70 nations or so with confused languages. But what happens in the scattering, you've got to understand that God says, okay, you don't want me on my terms. You want your own, you want your own choices. You want to choose yourself. That's pretty much what happened to Genesis 3, right? They chose to follow the serpent and eat the fruit when God told them not to. Again, they're making their own choice. They're trying to control God. And God says, I don't come when you want. Otherwise, Ed would have had Jesus here a long time ago. <laughs> I don't come when you want. Okay. So they get scattered, and, and the list of nations is in Genesis 10, that they're scattered to all these nations around the Mediterranean Sea. They're scattered all through that region, about 70 nations, with their own language. And we understand from the biblical text, and again, reading the writings of the Jews that are written alongside of the Bible, that they get their own gods who are supposed to look after them because they obviously don't want Yahweh. And then God chooses after that, at the very end of the chapter, God chooses, he goes, Abraham, who's an idolater, worships the moon God. Hey, how about you follow me? And the two of us will show them what they're missing. They want to follow these other spirits that aren't the most high. Let them do that and see where it takes them. And unfortunately, these other gods lead them astray. It's a rebellion. And that's how we get the idea of how the nations formed and all these languages formed. This is how they explained it, in this rebellion. And they worshiped other gods. And the Bible does say that only Yahweh is to be worshiped. Never was any of these spiritual beings ever to be worshipped. But hey, you know, they thought, and we did that in Ezekiel 28. Satan's like, hey, I want to be, you know, 
So they want to be worshipped. They took it upon themselves to do that. But that was never God's design. He's like, okay, you don't like me? Try these other gods and see how far they take you. I always had fun when I was in the East trying to explain. They'd ask me, first of all, why are you here and not in America? Because they think America is the greatest place ever. They said, who in the world in their right mind would want to leave America to come to our and be with us? Because they're all trying to get to America. Of course, it's always interesting trying to get that done legally, but <laughs> been trying that for a while. But see, they're all trying. They're desperately trying to get here. And I was amazed. You got 330 million gods and you're still trying to get to the Christian nation. What's the deal? Your 330 million gods can't take care of you? You know, I, I don't get it. It doesn't add up. Of course, it adds up for me in the gospel. Jesus left heaven, came down here to save. Yeah, missionary. Okay. I got something to go with. But you're, why are you trying so hard to get to America? And we'll probably sing that this weekend. God bless America or something, you know. Because he did. But they're trying their own thing, and it doesn't work out for them. Most of the ancient religions don't exist anymore. Islam is about 600 years after Jesus. We have that today. Hindu, Buddhist, primarily, it's, it's maybe starting to spread somewhat with the internet, but you, know, but you think about how far and vast Christianity has been and what they've accomplished in this world, and it's amazing. Matter of fact, if the atheists, and they're not even really good atheists, <laughs> I, I don't know if you ever read that book I gave you, by, I told you to read David Bentley Hart, The, the Atheist Delusion. But the atheists have all these arguments why Christianity is so bad. But when you go to history and you read what actually Christians have done in this world and how much in 2,000 years they have changed this world for the good, then you're going to go, wow. All their lies fall apart. That Christianity is just a terrible religion. Anyway, three rebellions, three realms, and a judgment. Let's talk about three reversals. Again, we have Genesis 3, the fall from Eden. So then Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, but it's God's putting them on mission. Now, they're severely handicapped here. But he, he sends them out. Obviously, they had it made inside the garden. Now they got to by the sweat of their brow. What's the reversal? The indwelling of God's spirit that pours out of the believer as life to the dead with empowerment sent out in mission. The Holy Spirit comes in us. The Holy Ghost is in us. And then we carry God's life out into the world just like they did. And we start reversing the curse that's upon the ground by saving people. Filling the whole earth full of God's glory by saving souls. By filling every one of these humans with the Spirit of God. They, they technically... The idea is a God dies when no one worships that God anymore. And I can name you all kinds of gods from the ancient world. As a matter of fact, we dealt with one of those mythological creatures, Rahab, on Sunday. Did we not? I mentioned Rahab. You, it's not Rahab at Joshua 2. It's another Rahab. No one's doing that stuff anymore because those things haven't ceased to exist. But still, Yahweh, still Jesus, still, there's no end. And there will never be an end. Because we said he's the first and he's last. We went through all those scriptures in Sunday school. Okay, now we have the Genesis 6, new creation of the flood to revert 
to Genesis 1 and restart. We have this corrupt knowledge, I said, that descended from him high. We have a reversal with Moses giving us the Torah when God's word in the Torah descended as Moses came down from the mountain and brought the Ten Commandments and the plans to build the tabernacle, a place where which God could dwell with his people. But then what do we have? We have the Holy Spirit at Pentecost coming down and the word made flesh, Jesus coming down. We have spirit and truth that have also descended. And so that when those two come together in us, we become a living word. Second Corinthians three, you not with tablets of stone, you in your hearts of flesh, Flesh? I thought flesh was a bad thing in the Bible. No, it's not. In your hearts of flesh, you have your God's word written by the Spirit for all men to see, to, for them to taste and see that God is good. So not only is Jesus the word made flesh, but you and I become the word made flesh when they see us, when this nation was forming. Where did all the hospitals come from? The church started all the hospitals. Where'd all the schools come from? The church, why? Because the schools were built so that you could read your Bible. They wanted to teach you to read so you could read your Bible, so you wouldn't believe anyone else's nonsense that you'd have a personal connection with God. This is the reversal of corrupt knowledge, of enslaved to these spirits and all these terrible things that they do to producing the fruit of the Spirit. Where life comes up out of us. Yes, life comes in. We have everlasting life come in, but we need it to come out of us and flow into all those who are dead. The reversal. What about Babel? We have the scattering of the nations with confused languages into bounded nations. Now we have all these nations. And they're all getting together and they're worshiping their God and they're all doing their thing and at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, now the people in the exact language of the Greek parallels what happens in Genesis 10 and 11. Now they're amazed that the language no longer are a barrier. Because at Pentecost, they spoke in tongues and people understood in their own language the gospel. He reverses the language as a barrier. Now they're all in one accord, the book of Acts says, where they were scattered in Genesis 10 11 to the nations. And yet he, not only were they scattered, but the tongues are scattered, but he scatters the people to go back to those very same 70 nations all around the Mediterranean Sea. Those 3,000 people that Peter could save, they had come in to celebrate Pentecost from all these nations. Now they go out, back to those nations, carrying the gospel. Paul says, I've never been to Rome. Who set up Rome? Well, maybe Peter did. Maybe not. We don't know for sure. Other people, like Apollos. How did Apollos get saved? Paul runs into people all the time. They know about the, it's been, the this story has been brought around to different people. Aquila and Priscilla, where did they get it from? People from all over have got it. It's a mission. The mission of Pentecost. As a matter of fact, this Sunday is actually Pentecost Sunday on the church calendar. If you didn't know that. But it was the idea of sending people out in mission to preach the gospel and reverse 
when they were scattered out, now God's bringing them all back into the family. It's all brought back into the family. You can see this in Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9. Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 says, When the Most High divided the nations. When were the nations divided? In Genesis 10 and 11. When he separated the sons of Adam. That's when humanity was separated. When is this talking about? The only time we can find this is in Genesis 10 and 11. As a matter of fact, the word separate, divided, is used in, the, in, in chapter 10. He set the bounds of the people. He set them up different nations with different languages. And they developed their own cultures. It's kind of interesting that Paul's the same way. They have over 126 people, uh, 125 people groups. I think it's 126 if I'm not mistaken. All with their own cultures and languages and everything. They're like, it's like they were all a bunch of different kings and eventually this king fell and that king fell and this group was brought in together and that group until finally they became just one. They had one king and then eventually they got rid of the one king. They had their own JFK assassination where the king's family was killed and then they decided to vote out the monarchy and they had a civil war and revolution and they redid it and they tried to develop a democracy, get a constitution. They had all that recently. Their constitution's like 2015. So it's all new. But there are all these people groups, and it's amazing. They're, by and large, Hindu. They don't believe in eating beef, holy cow. Yet there are people groups that eat beef, <laughs> illegally. And they're not Christian. They're not Westerners. But that was just their culture. They all have their different ways of eating, different ways of cooking, different ways of wearing clothes, different languages, different stories. They had all these things and it came together. But they were bounded by different things and then they came together as the nation of Nepal. And now the whole world is starting to come together, even now. But back then in Deuteronomy 32, 8, God sets the bounds of the people. You don't want to follow me and you don't want to worship me? Fine. Go off and try it what you want. According to the number of the children of Israel, for the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. Okay? So this is a little tricky because, I'm sorry, but the King James doesn't quite get this right. I'm going to switch over to the ESV here. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of people. No problem. But it's according to the number of the sons of God, representing these 70. And those sons of God, those beings that were set over each one of those nations. He sent the people out, they established their own nations, and they each had a son of God, a power over them that they chose. They were in partnership with. That's underneath God. But it's according to this, it was set up. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his lot inheritance. God chose Abraham and says, I'm going to carve out a land for you. And I want to bring you up out of Egypt and put you in that land. And you're going to be mine. And you're going to worship me. And we're going to show the rest of these gods and nations what they did wrong. Because there was no such thing in Genesis 10 and 11 as Israel. As a matter of fact, Genesis 10 11 is working all the way to introduce us to why God calls Abraham. Because all the nations and peoples left God. 
So then God grabs Abraham. Says, hey, they're all going to do their thing. Now how about you and me? We're going to do our thing. And so the, the better way to understand it is using better texts that we have that are older. From the Dead Sea Scrolls Witness, from the Greek Old Testament, from different manuscripts that are older than the King James users. The better rendering is according to the number of sons of God. Because he couldn't, he couldn't set them up according to the number of the sons of Israel because Israel wasn't born yet. Jacob's not born yet. Jacob doesn't have his 12 sons and we don't have the 70 or so in Egypt at the time of Joseph. That all happens at the end of Genesis. In Genesis 10 and 11, it can't be according to that number because that number doesn't exist yet. So what else could Moses be talking about? He's talking about according to the number of the sons of God, not the sons of Israel, which Israel means what? The word Israel comes from El, God, and Israel, the struggle. And there was a big struggle here anyway. There's a big struggle here in Genesis 10 11 between whether they're going to worship God or whether they want to control God. So minorly changing the Hebrew vow points and using other texts that we have as witness helps us to understand the most probable meaning here. Nothing that the King James is bad or anything. It just didn't get it right. Why? Because it's human people trying their best. And in this, this place, they didn't do so well. Most of the time, it's okay. But I prefer the ESV's rendering to understand the meaning here. To understand what this means. Because it doesn't make sense for them to be numbered according to an Israel that does not exist in Genesis 10 and 11. We haven't even got to Abraham yet. So how does that make any sense? Now the Lord will choose his portion, which is Jacob. And that's Jacob is coming. And that's moves us right into the Abraham story at the end of chapter 11, why we begin with Abraham right there. So it, it feeds into what's happening. Okay? Now in Deuteronomy 10, 17, for the Lord your God is God of gods, which is where I've taken the title of the message from. He's Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. Yahweh, that's L-R-D capitalized. That's Yahweh in the Hebrew. Is your God. And your God is what? Your God is the God of all gods. Now, we don't have this over here. But I've dealt with prime ministers before. And when you have an election, you get ministers. And they're all chosen for each territory. But one of those ministers is then chosen to be the prime minister. And so the prime minister of a country, that's a minister in one place that's put above all the other people, all the other ministers. And it's this idea that your God happens to be God of all. But see, the difference between this, though, is what we said earlier. There is no God with you. With me, he says. Not only is God the prime minister, but God is not even in the same category, Yahweh. He's nowhere in the same category of these other gods because he's the most high. He's way above them. These are sons. These are lesser beings that the people chose to worship instead of Yahweh that they chose to follow. 
our God. Now, Jesus is taking this up. He's, what's the New Testament called? Jesus, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Where are we getting it from? Deuteronomy 10, 17. Which is getting it using Deuteronomy 32, taking you back to Genesis chapter 10 and 11, taking you back to all these stories about how all these other people, how did they get to being worshiping other gods? How did that happen? Through these three rebellions. That's how the Jews explain it. These three rebellions, that's how. That's where all the other gods came from. That's where everything happened. They have it mapped out. They understand it. We always talk about Genesis 3, and we don't know what to do with 6, and then we hardly ever do anything with 10 and 11. Psalm 136.2, Oh, give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endureth forever. For some reason, we decided when we got smart and we got science, before we got dinosaurs, we decided to delete all other gods. He said, there's only one God. That's not what the Bible says. It says, for us, there's one God. They went hog wild after all these other gods. There are other spiritual beings out there that they have worshipped. But they're not Yahweh. They're not on par with Yahweh at all. They're lesser beings. And that makes sense, to me anyway. When Satan came to Jesus, says, I'll give you the whole world. And Jesus says, no. Satan's never offered me the whole world. I always takes sins much less. <laughs> I fall for those little tiny sins. So it makes sense. I'm by nature drawn to the lesser things when God wants to offer me greater things. And Satan offered Jesus the whole world. He said, I'm going to get it from you, but not your way. I'm going to get it his way. And he could have called legions of angels, but he didn't. He did it God's way to reverse what happened. But to, to say that God is the God of gods and then say there's no other gods that exist, it means you're trying to say God is the God of zero. He's the God of nothing. If the other gods are like Mickey Mouse and Spider-Man cartoons, then he's the God of Hollywood, Disney, Plus or minus or whatever they're doing in Florida right now. I don't know if they're plusing or minusing. I can't remember what they're doing. It's so confusing. No, he's actually the God of all these beings. And I could take you through the language and explain it to you from a grammatical standpoint. But I've been trying to show you slowly, slowly all of this so you can understand it. So you can really understand what's going on. That he is the God over all. He has a spiritual heavenly family and he has an earthly family. And the spiritual family, some of them have rebelled. And the earthly family, some of them have rebelled. We get the chance to repent. We get the chance to be right with God. We've been given that mercy. Daniel 2.47. This is Nebuchadnezzar talking to Daniel. Instead of a truth, it is that your God is the God of God's. Yours. He's like, I need to worship yours. You got the boss. You got the boss. I'm talking to the president. I'm talking to the prime minister. I'm talking to the top one. Man, that's nice. He's the Lord of kings. They thought kings were godly, had divine, like Pharaoh, had some kind of divine power. And your God is Lord even over the kings, of which I'm just one. 
and a revealer of secrets, seeing that thou couldst reveal the secret. There it is, God of gods. And this is the name that Jesus is invoking in that storm when he's telling the disciples, be not afraid, because it doesn't matter what you think you saw. Let me show you who is with you, what you should be seeing. I'm not here to, to spend hours and endless hours of going through all 330 million of those gods over there. No, I'm here to tell you, forget those gods, and let's focus on the one God that we need to focus on and forget the rest of them. That's all I'm trying to do here. That's what he's trying to tell them. You think you see something? I'm trying to reveal to you who I am. Who I am. Daniel eleven thirty six, And the king shall do nothing. Excuse me. The king shall do according to his will. And he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. And shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods. And shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished for that that is determined shall be done. Here we go. They are railing against what? The God of gods. And this king that Daniel's talking about in chapter 11, he's going to exalt himself above every God. Including not just any God. Not just any God. He's going to exalt himself above the God of all gods. Who is that? Well, duh, it's Yahweh. Now, Jesus is human, right? Jesus is human. But there's no other human like Jesus, is there? And God is God, and there's no other God like Yahweh. It's pretty simple. If you understand the Trinity, you can understand what I'm trying to say. I told you, number one, I would be most faithful to the text as it's given to us, as God revealing himself to us. Jesus is 100% human. But there's no other human that comes even close to Jesus. And there's no other God that comes close to Jesus. Because huh? he's also 100% God. But we were just led to believe something different. Matter of fact, the atheists have a saying. They, they, they often say this. They say, you know, you deleted all the other gods and we just have one less god than you do. You did all the hard work for us. No, I believe those other spirits exist. I believe they exist because the Bible tells me so. Jubilee sings it all the time. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible, I just believe what the Bible tells me so. That's all I'm doing is trying to be faithful to the text. I'm letting you know. That whatever they thought they saw, whatever you think you see out there, don't worry about it. You focus on me, Jesus said. Because when Peter took his eyes off of Jesus, down he went. I'm not here to, to glorify any other God. I'm here to let you know they exist. Many of them are with God. Some of them are opposed to God. It doesn't really matter to me. Whatever they do. Because all we have to do is be worried about our God, and we got the right one. Not right in the sense that he's the only one that exists, but right in the sense that he's the only one that, that lives for you and me and wants the absolute best for us because he created us and he loves us enough to die for us, to do everything he's done for us. And there's no 
other God that will go to the extent that Yahweh has given. Because none of them have that power, but none of them have his love. Love for you. So no matter what you're going through, and if you're sinking, if you're drowning, just reach that hand out and say, Lord, save me. And this God, who's above all of the most high, will be there for you at the name of Jesus. That's what the disciples said. We have no silver and gold. We have none. But what we have, we'll give you. Jesus, we'll just give you Jesus. And boy, he jumped up out of and started. And when he ran dancing through the temple. That's all I got. I got one thing. I got Jesus. That's all you need. It works. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the God of all gods. And this is the Jesus whom... Not only do we worship, but it's within us that we are called into you, being that God that's way above, that there's no God comparable with you. You're the incomparable God. You're totally in a classification all by yourself, just as we are nothing like Jesus. There's no other God like you. And you have proven yourself to be faithful and true in all things toward us, no matter what we've done, even some of the things we're doing. You still are remain true and faithful and are willing to go to bat to bring us into your kingdom. You've given us the choice to choose. There's so many options out there, but there's only one that is the true option for us. And as Paul said, and all the Jews say, for us, we will worship this God, our God, Yahweh. And that's the one who met them out on that sea when they struggled all night. And Peter nearly drowned, but you saved him. And you're still saving. You're saving us. And we thank you for all that you do to save us. We glorify you, and we pray that we receive everything you have for us. In Jesus' my name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this broadcast. You can find out more about us at dken.cc. That's D-K-E-N dot C-C. We look forward to seeing you next time. God bless you.